Sling and Quack, welcome back to Hamsterdam. I'm Rusty Ryan, joined by Ifo Bumaye. Uh, and we are coming off an interesting game against Washington State. I very, Lots of things to talk about. I have very mixed feelings. Mostly good feelings. Mostly good feelings. Nobody got hurt that we Some know bad of. bad ones. Yeah. Um... And unlike most of our podcasts, we didn't spend 45 minutes talking about what we were going to talk about before we started recording. So right now we're just doing it live. Well, do it live, damn it. <laughs> do it live. Also, at some point I'm going to follow through. Maybe this weekend because I'm not traveling to a game um, and I'm actually in the state for an away game. But... Maybe you'll finally get us set up on iTunes. So remember, like, rate, and subscribe. <laughs> five stars. If you don't get, it, if you're not going to give us five stars, don't leave a review. Also, basically, what Rusty is saying is he's just humble bragging about jet sitting all around the country yes. and the world. Yes, exactly. I'm going to put an E on the podcast, so now we can maybe loosen up the language a little bit, because that was such a problem before. Roll Tad. Roll Tad, y'all. Um, so, first, okay, I got into a little bit of a Twitter tirade during the game about this. But, so first off, I want to preface this with, Washington State was the better team. Many of these calls did not matter. But at what point is the conference going to seriously address the officiating? Uh, based on recent history, recent being the last decade, uh, <laughs> they are not. I honestly don't understand why. It is baffling to me that the officiating can be this terrible for this long. Like, are they not doing trainings in between games in the offseason? Like, it's honestly ridiculous because, A, they're just bogus calls all the time for absolutely everybody. For absolutely everybody. The Ducks have benefited from a bunch of terrible calls. Ducks have been hurt by a bunch of terrible calls. So it all works out... It all breaks even over time, but we've seen with some of these games that it can pretty much determine the outcome. It wasn't in this instance, but in some others it has, and it just really bugs me because uh, you got these kids that are putting everything into preparing for these games and doing everything right, and then these refs come in who don't care, and they just screw it up, and there's no accountability whatsoever. Uh, and it's like, why are you guys here? You're literally the only people participating in this game actually on the field who are getting paid, and you guys are maybe the worst performers on it. And it's really just that was like... That a soapbox. Does, I enjoyed it. Does the, conference, does, the, does the conference have no shame in its terrible officiating? No, like, I wonder if they're sitting at the office like, hmm... You know what? This atrocity of officiating every week in every game. Maybe we should do something about this. Or maybe be a little proactive about it. No. 
And I can't believe that none of these refs are getting any better. And if they are putting in extra work, it's really not showing, and they need to get their stuff figured out. And I wonder, like, do they have any pride in what they do? Or are they just, like, showing up and being, like, like pulling, like, a Mark Zuckerberg Facebook, like, well, if both sides are upset, then that means we're doing something right. Like, or maybe you guys are a bunch of dumbasses. <laughs> maybe you guys are a bunch of dumbasses out there just screwing everything up for all of these players who are working their butts off, and it's just infuriating to me, and they're a laughingstock to the entire country. Laughingstock to the entire country, and every time they officiate uh, like a bowl game, uh, everyone realizes how terrible of a situation officiating is in the Pac-12. The national joke, and they're totally fine with it, and I just wish there was some accountability. I just can't stand people who suck at what they do, and they're completely apathetic about it. I got, uh, a lot more, I got a lot more fired up than I thought uh, I was. <laughs> I'm sorry, hold on. Okay, 2017 is the year of the salt. <laughs> so, um, I have some thoughts on this. Okay. We'll see if I can get as fired up as you. So I didn't intend oh, to get that fired up. <laughs> oh, overall... I would say that I am a big fan of what Larry Scott has done with the conference. Yes. Overall. Um, not just about football, but since this is we're, we're talking about football, I'll just confine it to football. Um, the creation of the Pac-12 network, although it has its hiccups and it's not on DirecTV, and if you're living in a region that's not a part of your school, you can't get your school on the region sometimes, which is a big pet peeve of mine. Um, despite that, Pac-12 Network is a huge success. They have had a lot of initiatives um, related to student-athlete wellness, which pretty much as soon as the NCAA uh, takes the reins off a little bit <coughs> on what you're able to do for student-athletes, the Pac-12 is jumping at the bit to take advantage of that. Um, off the top of my head, like when the NCAA made it okay to give unlimited snacks, snacks. Pac-12 was like, we're, we're, we're all in. Um, same thing with full cost of attendance. Everyone's getting fruit leathers. Which, which is great. Um, with that being said, this is a this is a compliment sandwich type situation right now. <laughs> that was the compliment. I 100% agree that the Pac-12 referees, not just in football, but since we're talking about football, they have been so bad for so long. And it's, it seems, maybe it's just me and recency, but it seems like it's getting worse. Because I can think of four games not even including any Oregon games in that thus far this year that the result of the game has potentially been altered by calls and that's a big problem I mean we're only through six weeks of the season yeah seven weeks of the season um, we're six because yeah. there was a week zero technically but that's really just week one you're, yeah you're right so um, that's an issue, and part of 
the leadership of a conference is ensuring that that conference retains its legitimacy nationwide, this is an issue and it needs to be addressed. You know, I, I have never refereed football. I'm sure it's very hard. The kids that play at the D1 level at places like Oregon and USC and these really top tier universities, um, they are huge and fast and strong and they gave moves incredibly quickly. Um, But with that being said, there's no way that a line judge who is five feet away from a play should allow a Washington State DB to two-hand push our wide receiver and get a pick six. That should not happen. Or maybe not a pick six, but a pick. Um, Yeah, well, every other conference has figured it it out. ACC to a lesser extent, but literally every other conference has figured it out. Now I'm going to finish the compliment sandwich. Yes. The one other thing that they've done well is I think that they have done well on instant replay, getting it consolidated into one location and making them quick and speedy, and we figure out what the right call is and then moving on with that. Yeah. The problem with that is, is everyone that, on location still sucks. Is that not every single play can be replayed, and if you make the poor call or let's say there's a fumble and somebody picks it up and scores, but you called the play dead, then, oops, I'm going to be Seb Gorka. Oopsie poopsie. (laughs) Oopsie doopsie. So, um, yes, long story short, I 100% agree that this is a big issue for the Pac-12, especially in football, but in our other sports as well, and it's something that needs to get figured out. Yeah. It's most apparent in football to me because I watch most conference games and I see the exact same stuff happen every single game, every single week. So, all right, moving on. On to a more positive note. The loss to Washington State. Go Cougs. I mean, it really couldn't happen to a nicer program. Every Washington State Cougar fan I know is awesome. Really? Yes. Well... I will agree is, that is there one that we know about? No, mutually? I will I will agree about their fans. Um, there's something about their team left a left a sour taste in my mouth towards the end of that game. And I think it's something similar to what every team that plays the Seattle Seahawks faces because their defense and this is again going back to the Pac-12 refs. Um their defense is very smart in that they kind of take after the Seahawks. They're just going to be physical, especially on the outside in their secondary, every single play, because at some point you can't call them all. And Well, that's not true. We know that's not true. So, you know, that – it's a smart way to play. But there was some stuff that they were doing. I don't know. It just it just left a, a, a sour taste in my mouth. Um, but I agree. Every Washington State fan that I have met has been a wonderful person because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. So what were your takeaways from this game? Positives, negatives, things that need to change? Positives. 
our defense has got some ballers on it. Fat Mac forever. Fat Mac splitting the double team to start the second half and just eating the quarterback. Just oh my that was such a that was such a phenomenal play. That was such a phenomenal play beginning to end. I highly enjoyed following along on Twitter and uh, seeing Spencer Hall post Fat Max backflip. Yeah. Um, or he was corrected. It wasn't a backflip. It was a gainer. Whatever. It's a backflip. He, he flipped over backwards. Twice, both in high school and as a freshman, into a pool. So I love seeing that again. He's just a freak athlete. For being... What, he's probably 330 now is what he's listed at. And when he came in, he was like 350. Rumor had it that at one point in high school, he weighed 370. Although that's also coming from someone who said that's why Florida stopped recruiting him. I mean, this guy, he reminds me of um, Glenn Big Baby Davis, who played basketball for LSU and then the Boston Celtics who was just a giant person. He 100% could have been a defensive tackle. And he just had the best feet in the world. He was powerful. He was explosive. And then he got to the pros, and he ate a little bit too much. But in college, he dominated. And this that's how I feel about Fat Mac. So that was number one. Troy Dye forced a fumble from his back on purpose. <laughs> That was such a weird play to watch live. It was like, wait, what happened? You see the replay. And it was, wow. Wow. That's one of those plays where you bust your butt every play. Eventually some good stuff happens. We're starting the Heisman campaign. Hashtag Troy Deisman. Troy Deisman. Yes. Um, So the pro pro football focus every week does a review. Three Ducks made the all-defense team. It was Jalen Jelks, Troy Dye, and Arion Springs. And we should uh, note that this is the all-defense team for the Pac-12, not nationwide. Yes, correct. And 20 of, like, I know we were texting about the show today, but 20 of, um, um, 20 of Washington State's points came off of turnovers in short fields. And... Not only that, I think it was, what, 20, it was three touchdowns, and it was off one play drives, right? Yeah. Because there was the, in the first quarter, was there was the turnover on downs, which was a one play little kind of screen action that was a 40-some-odd yard touchdown. Right, and a linebacker missed coverage. Yeah, that was a beneficiary of some missed tackles, but also Blake Rugraff got completely wiped out by Jalen Jelks trying to go for that tackle. Um, so that was one. Um, in start of the third quarter, they off the aforementioned pick, um, they got a one-play touchdown. And then there was another that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but I know it happened. Yeah, trust us. So long story short, there was explosion plays, and they need to get that under control. Um, but for the vast majority of that game, the defense held what's a very explosive offense in check. I mean, they had... I'm trying to see how many total plays Washington State had. 
They had 25 runs, 24 pass attempts. So, yeah, I don't know, 50, 60 plays, something like that. That's it? I could, that, that could be wrong. I feel like that's very, very low. Great prep work by us. Yeah, as a side note, I really don't like the way that um, Godux.com has their stats set up. I'm not a fan. So but, there were 42 passes, 25 carries. Um, so, oh, somebody uh, somebody made a typo on Godux.com then because it says they only had 24 passes. They had 24 completions. So basically out of, what, 65-ish plays, three were explosion plays that went for touchdowns. And other than that, I think the defense played very well. I mean, especially compared to the dumpster fire that was last year. I mean, right now on defense, just purely defense, on our efficiency ranking we're ranked 10th in the country on efficiency defensively. Um, we're not super explosive, but compared to last year, it is so much better. It's not even funny. On defense? Yes. Yeah, it's it's night and day. It is night and day how much what's, better this team is. What's the defense. biggest change that you've seen the biggest change that I've seen um cause I have one in mind I think there's a few if I did if I had to nail it down to one is the defense knows what they're doing at all times <laughs> Sorry, that just sounds funny. Which is an improvement, but it is, but that allows them to play really fast, and that's why we see like a bunch of like screen plays get blown up, or like a lot of plays. Why there's so many zero yardage plays or negative yardage plays, because there's a lot of there's a there's you can just see that a lot of the times Oregon's defense knows what play is being run on them. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that Troy Dye has been extremely successful transitioning from outside linebacker to inside to Mike. He's excellent sideline, sideline. You will see him, um, you know, all the time, pre-snap, making out these calls that is basically saying, this play is going this way on, on this particular play. Um, the one that I was thinking of that I, that I think has made the most difference is the amount and the speed at which our defensive line and our front seven as a whole has been able to pressure the opposing quarterback. Um, going into last game, we were ranked, I think second in the country in total sacks. Mm Um, and what that does, and we saw this with Washington State's defense where they were able to get pressure on Burmeister and stop up the run is that allowed their secondary 
to go all out. And they know that they can basically cover for two and a half, three seconds, and then the play is going to be over. Yeah. Uh, and especially compared to our secondary last year, now Thomas Graham is a big addition and he's played very well. Uh, but compared to our secondary from last year, guys that are that were the same that played last year and played this year, Arion Springs, Ugo, they're playing with much more confidence. Tyree Robinson is a huge one. Uh, in the last two games, despite his targeting call, he has been extremely more physical and just play. He's just playing faster. And so I think that might be part of it that what you were saying, that they know what's happening. They know what the right reads are to make. But I I think a lot of that is to do with the front seven being able to pressure the quarterback because you have Jalen Jelks having a breakout year. You have the addition of guys like Fat Mac and Austin Folliou. Even Justin Hollins is getting pressures on the quarterback. Uh, Jonah Moy has sacks in like five out of the last six games, which I feel like he's kind of floating under the radar a little bit. For how productive he's been, Moy. Uh, yeah. Oh, his biggest thing is he basically will make the pocket so small that it confines. Um, it basically pushes. It basically takes away an escape route for the quarterback, so that he has to go back towards Hollins and Jokes. So I think we're both in agreement. The. I think overall, Tyra, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Overall and for last game, I, I think the defensive play was, was a strong suit. Um, I know in the the post-game presser, guys like Troy Dye and the defensive leaders were saying that they need to be better. They had missed tackles. And I agree. I mean, that you're gonna always going to have missed tackles in any football game. Um, I think tackles have been so much better, especially in the secondary. Yeah, and, and overall, I think the defense played well enough to win us that ball. Yes. Uh, moving on to things that need to improve. Well, I think, quick note, I, th- I just want to give a special props to Tyree Robinson, who I was... Uh, Generously not high on. Not a fan of at the safety position. Um, and he has really proven me wrong. He is like a different player this year. He looks like an entirely different player this year than the previous seasons in the best kind of way. And I think part of that, though, I, I some of that, I mean, you have to give him credit for improving as a player. Yeah. But I, part of that is the coaching staff putting him in a position to succeed and understanding what he does well and setting him free to do just that. Because you don't see Tyree Robinson in a whole lot of pulled safety over the top in coverage, like back in a cover three. You see him being the guy that is going to come down over the middle or snuff out a little bubble screen. He's playing downhill which has always been his strong suit. Even when he was switching back and forth between um, safety and boundary corner, 
last year, his strong suit has always been being physical, been getting downfield and playing up in receivers' faces. So I think a lot of that, probably equally, has the credit has to go to Tyree Robinson and the credit has to go to the defensive coaching staff. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, the Do we want to touch on play calling? Yeah. Okay, yeah. let's go ahead and touch on it. I try, I really try not to be too critical of play calling because there's so much that goes into calling plays that it's just outside of like what makes sense on like front like as an armchair quarterback. So I, I agree, um, but at the same time, there's. I think it's fair as a fan, especially if you're an informed fan. When you watch a game, especially when you watch it a couple times, to have questions about, well, why did the coach have to do this? Why did they do this? And that's completely reasonable, especially early in a coaching staff's tenure where, I mean, we're still getting to know how Coach Taggart and his staff operates. So I... I think the questions about play calling are fair. Um, I don't necessarily think that play calling was the worst thing in the world for this past game. Um, one thing that I noticed, and I would be interested to know, I don't think it's possible to know, but I, I think it would be interesting to know how much of this is um, due to changes in the game plan versus adjustments that Washington State made. But one thing that I noticed offensively with the play calling was early on, we were doing a lot of rollouts for Burmeister. Um, We were doing more pulling of the guards. Um, And then as the game progressed into the second quarter and beyond, you really didn't see Burmeister roll out for passes a lot more. And on run plays, we saw the offensive line really just go straight ahead as opposed to those power pulling runs that we've seen so often earlier in this season. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think part of that is Washington State's front seven is just really good. And I think they adjusted. I think they confused the offensive line with their pre-snap motions and the stunts that they used during plays. Um, but I think it's I think it's fair for fans to wonder why we're doing things certain ways. Yeah, and again, it kind of goes back to basically the offensive line not using really any zone blocking, which is what this group has been doing since they got to Oregon. And whenever there's a switch, that pretty much changes a lot of the assignments. And I think Washington State's front seven really showed why their defense has secretly been so dominant this year. Because, I mean, this is the the unit that... uh, 
our D-line coach basically turned into the force that it is now over the last few years. Washington State's defensive corner has also been really good. Um, but I think, like, even Bill Connolly on podcast ain't played nobody was saying that he thinks that Washington State got lucky a fair amount of times against USC. Uh, but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I don't want to be too much of a uh, revisionist historian, but I think Washington State's actually a lot better than we thought they were coming in. We'll see. I mean, I would tend to agree with that. Right now, based on win probability, their most likely scenario is finishing with 10 wins. Um, Which is and, outstanding. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that they could finish with 11 as well. Um, their win probability for 9 wins is 27%, 10 is 36, and 11 is 22 so, and I, I look at their upcoming schedule. This week they play at Cal. I think that's a win for them. Then yeah. they play Colorado, Arizona, Stanford, Utah, and Washington. I mean, Stanford and Washington are the two on there that really jump out to you. And even then, we'll get to a Stanford preview in a little bit, but Stanford has been really one-dimensional on offensively. Yep. And that's the type of team that Washington State thrives playing against because, like we just saw, when a team can't throw effectively, um, their front seven can cause havoc on on running downs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so that sounds like a good transition to talk about the quarterback situation. So sure. it sounded like – well. I mean, they confirmed that Taylor Alley uh, was not available to play because of concussion protocol. Yep. And I think if he if he was available to play, he would have started. I Early in the week, I would have leaned toward Alley starting. Um, it sounded like, based on practice reports at last week, that Burmeister was really pushing for playing time. You know, without being at practice, it's hard to know how much of that was um, how much of that was Burmeister actually pushing for playing time and doing really well in practice, and how much of that was Allie just not being available to practice. I think but it's I, the latter. I would say you're probably right. I think in an ideal scenario, if Ali was healthy and available, you probably would have seen Ali start, and you probably would have seen Burmeister get anywhere from three to four series to see what what he could do. To get some reps. Yeah. So, yeah, I think... With Burmeister, we saw somebody, we saw a true freshman in his first start and getting meaningful snaps against a good defense. And I think he played at a pretty appropriate level, given the situation. I think that's what probably could be reasonably expected. He could have done better, but... 
I think that was in the realm of what we could have reasonably expected. I think that's fair. I think we probably got a little spoiled last year with Justin Herbert starting as a true freshman and pretty much blowing the doors off, statistically at least. Um, you know, the, the areas that I saw that were really lacking for Burmeister were a couple areas. One, um, the coaching staff basically came out and said that the, the majority of the false starts were his fault based on cadence and not being loud enough. Yeah. Uh, which is not really surprising. Anytime you change from one quarterback to another, there's going to be some of that issue. Uh, but I think in the first two series that we had, we had four false starts. Um, God, I mean, that was that's so painful in the stadium. Yeah, that that's, that's oh an issue. God. So that, that was number one. Um, number two, this could be him just kind of, having his adrenaline going um but he tended to overthrow deep balls and then or maybe he, th- or maybe he was told to under overthrow in rather it was better to overthrow than underthrow yeah but he was you know there were ones especially early in the game when he was going deep deep to johnny johnson the third um that he wasn't even giving his receivers a chance now i would rather that than throw an interception but at some point you have to give your receivers a chance. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, my third big area of improvement that I'm out of him for this next game is when he does pull the ball and he runs, either slide or figure out a way to get out of bounds because he was taking a lot of hits, um, not just on his little spin moves and stuff, but even early in the game, where he was, um, you know, he basically got a first down if it wasn't for a terrible spot. And he took three hits on that one play early in the first quarter. I think it was on our second drive. Yeah. Um, I think we are going to see a significant improvement because the biggest improvement for teams is made between weeks one and week two. And that was basically Braxton's week one. I still don't think we're going to see anything near a above-average quarterback play. I think we can hope for average quarterback play and probably expect a little below average. Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, I just, is honestly what happens when you have a true freshman you're starting. Yeah, I, I, I agree. We You know, we can't, going into this next week and beyond – we can't expect that Burmeister is going to be winning us games. Um, now, that turned out to not be the case with Herbert last year, but anytime you start a true freshman and with the depth that we have at the running back position, that has to be our hope that they really um, figure out the running game and the offensive line can, can exert its will going forward because yeah. that's what we're going to make our hay offensively. Yeah. So I think we're just going to see hopefully a better game plan coming into this into this week. I think the coaching staff made everything as simple as possible for Braxton, which I mean they should do just so that there can be some effectiveness. Um, but I know there was a lot of stuff on Twitter as, as 
as usual, about just like getting Braxton Burmeister reps and, you know, like just throw him out there and see what happens. Like get him the experience now. And that sounds fine on paper, but the reality of the situation is that if you put a player out who isn't ready, especially as a freshman, that can be very damaging to their psyche. And I know Joey Harrington's been pretty public about this recently, but I know he would talk about it at University of Oregon leadership classes, but like his his time at Detroit went so badly that it like damaged his like psyche and confidence to where he was seeing a therapist for like the rest of his professional career. Yeah, and, and I would say that's probably that's probably more of an extreme scenario. Yeah, but, I'm just saying that's that's what you're 100 percent right. Yeah, the, the the most popular guy on the team is always going to be the backup quarterback, unless your starter is Marcus Mariota. So, um, you know, fans will always see potential, especially of these young guys coming in that are highly rated. I mean, Burmeister was a four-star. He was like, what, the number seven dual-threat quarterback in the country coming in? Um, So there's always going to be this sense of the grass is always greener, especially when it's a guy like Burmeister who's highly recruited, really talented. He showed flashes in the spring game versus a guy like Taylor Alley who, you know, he's a local guy. He's been very good for the program. But in all realistic, realistically, he was our place-kicking holder for three years. You know, the fans are always going to want the young, sexy option yeah. compared to a guy that's at least been in the program. Um, I know there's been an argument made that, well, they've both in it, been in Taggart's system for the same amount of time, but at the same time, even if... Ali was in Helfrich's system. He still has experience at the college level, which you just cannot replicate unless until you get into that game scenario. Yeah, and part of it is uh, yeah, and I agree with that. And part of it is too is that even though it's a different offense or that it's a different basically playbook and coach and everything, it's still a lot of the same concepts. Like a zone reads a zone read. Like, making high-low reads is making high-low reads. And having the experience at the collegiate level is just something that you can't replicate no matter how good someone is in high school or how, like, the level of competition that they had. I would agree. Um, I mean, that's... That's the the very simplified answer to it, though probably oversimplified answer. At the same time, though, I don't want to. I don't want to make it seem like you know all hope is lost. No, I think Burmeister so. showed a lot of flashes, especially early in the game when things were really kind of going smoothly on offense. Um, and it, it's really going to be a combination of him getting used to the college game and the speed that comes along with that, as well as the coaching staff putting him in a position to succeed, which will determine the fate of you know short term at least the next couple of games uh until 
Herbert can hopefully recover from his broken collarbone. Collarbone. Um, I'm anticipating being without him for the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, I know I, they say it's four to six weeks, but I doubt he's back this year. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, maybe for a bowl. Um, maybe if things go well, he could be back for the last one or two games. But you know, we'll see. Um, wh- what do you think about the Stanford game coming up this week? I'm pessimistic about it, mostly for the same reasons. Um, Stanford's secondary is very good. I think it's the best unit on their defense. And I think their coaches are not going to have any issues putting them on islands with our receivers. Hopefully Charles Nelson and Dylan Mitchell are back. But I think that we see basically their secondary just matches up one-on-one and they just let their front seven just pretty much put pressure on Braxton and stuff any rushing opportunity until we prove to them that we can't burn them passing. Yeah, the one thing that I am most worried about from on the at least on when we're on offense, um, the thing that I'm most worried about is the play of their D-tackle. Harrison Phillips has been really good. He has four tackles for loss on the season, seven run stuffs on the season. Um, I mean, he's he's a very good player. And just like we were talking about earlier, how when you pressure the quarterback, that, that makes good things happen. That really sets up their secondary, who is their best overall unit, to make plays. So... Um, we'll see. I, I'm not overly, um, optimistic about how we would work on the offensive side of the ball. Um, you know, I think that this game will probably end up being relatively low scoring. I would think, I think the over under right now in Vegas is what, probably somewhere around, like high fifties for this game. I would think that it will probably be more of like a mid forties. Um, so I would take the under if I was, if I was betting on this, this over under. Um, but what I am excited about is I'm excited to see our defense against a team that is pretty one dimensional on offense. Now, yeah. Bryce love is an, a fantastic running back. Honestly, I think he's probably a better overall back than Christian Christian McCaffrey was. Um, the over and, under is fifty seven and a half. Stanford, it opened as a fifty nine over under, and the spread moved from Stanford being favored by ten and a half to Stanford eleven. Hmm. I mean, I I would still take the under on that over under. Yeah. Um, and. I, I'm just excited to see our defense be able to hopefully do some really um, significant damage against um, against a team that can is basically one dimensional. Yeah, I mean, what on the plus side, 
Stanford has shown that they can lose. They've done it twice. They lost to USC, and they lost to San Diego State. And the San Diego State, they turned the ball over three times. They went three for 11 on third down. Um, and they just couldn't get San Diego State off the field. Um, San Diego State had the ball for over 41 minutes of the 60 minutes. I think that was also before Stanford realized that if they just hand the ball off 40 times during the game, they're going to be better off. Because they went 10 for 21 passing for 80 yards, and they averaged 8 yards a carry on the ground. Yet they only ran the ball 22 times. Yeah, I can't really understand that that much. Yeah. And, I mean, the same thing happened. Uh, I forget which game it was exactly. No, I think that was the game where I was like, why are they passing the ball at all? And the next week against USC, all they did was run it. Their starter was out. They put a backup in. Only thing they did was run it. And they destroyed UCLA on the ground. So I think we just see that, really, pretty much all game. Um, and we're probably going to see a lot of uh, a lot of four four defense. But at the same time, I mean that's pretty much been classic Stanford. They they're going to run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, and then every now and then they'll do a play action pass. So I think defensively the game plan is pretty clear cut. Um, I'm just interested to see that the. the the progression of Burmeister and hopefully him and his offensive line gelling a little bit more so we can get, you know, rather than two yards on first down running the ball, we can start to get four and five, which will really set us up well later in, in the down. Yeah. I think that's, that was, that was one of our biggest problems. Maybe this goes back to play calling. Maybe this goes back to how the offensive line is different this year. It's a bunch of factors, but, you know, like you said, first and second down went terribly most drives. And when you're asking a freshman quarterback to routinely convert third and seven, third and eights, that's just a very tall order. It's, it's going to be a problem. You're going to have a bad time. I, I 100% agree. So, um, and it's that type of stuff that really is going to make everything a lot easier. I know I texted this but, uh, like earlier in the week on one of our group texts, but I think a lot of this problem, a lot of the offensive line issues, may leave may be solved when Cristobal gets some of the 330 pounders he's recruiting in. Yeah, number one recruiting castle. Uh, It'll help fix a lot of problems. I think I think when he's got 330-pound behemoths compared to 305, 310-pounders, that them just falling forward is going to get us a couple of those yards. So I have, I, I'm thinking about last week, and I have one more thing that I want to touch on before we move on to um, – college football games in general over this upcoming weekend. Yeah. Uh, a lot was made over this past week about fans in general, but especially students leaving the game early. Yes. I wanted to talk about this. So there, I saw basically two schools of thought on this. Um, one was people 
for lack of a better term, being outraged and saying you need to stay until the end of the game and the, the team deserves your, your support and you know, you're not a good fan if you don't stay. The other was people saying um, either, yeah, but the students want to, it's a Saturday night, it's late, our offense hasn't done anything and they want to go party or for the season ticket holders. Yeah, but it's a long drive to Bend or Portland. Um, where do you come down on this side of that argument? I thought about this a lot this week. Cause I know a lot of the players were saying like, thanks for the fans who stuck it out till the end. Like it is pretty discouraging to see people leave at halftime. Um, and I think one of my biggest beefs is with one, one of the things is with um, I do understand how late it can get and how that can be a problem for a lot of people the older I get the less I like night games by a significant amount I had no problem dealing with them when I was like 16, 17 21, 22. But now I'm at the old, old age of 27, and I'm like, God, I cannot handle these late games anymore. Because I mean, the- yeah, I'm a, just an old person, just telling kids to get off my lawn. Um, like with the 7 p.m. games, I got back to my place in Portland at like 2 in the morning. And for the 5 p.m. game, I got back at, like, 1. And it's a lot, knowing that when you're, like, the longer you're at the game, you're like, this is going to take a while for me to get back. Like, this is a, this is going to be really late, especially when it's not a super competitive game at times. I just think my basic school of thought is we get six to seven home games a year. And that's all we get is 360 to 420 minutes of football. So I'm going to stay for every minute. So... And I'm not going to fan shame people and be like, if you don't stay till the end, you're not a real fan. Real fans stay to the end. I mean, that is true to some extent. Um, But... People got things. People got things to do, um, and I mean, it's really just like any form of entertainment in a way. When it gets down to its purest form, it's really just another form of entertainment. But there definitely is a certain level of, to me, like this is the school you went to for most people. Like these are student athletes who aren't being compensated for what they're doing at least at market value and it's important to stay um i feel like i feel like it's just like it's good to stay for the entire game so i mean the players have actually this is the first time i've ever really seen the players tweet out that it's like kind of disheartening to see people be see people leaving early or like not make it back to their seats at halftime yeah, and, you know, and that's, so there are a couple issues there. Um, 
I, th- I think Oregon fans have always been late arriving back from halftime because because of the no alcohol sales policy inside Autzen Stadium, unless you're uh, one of those rich guys that has club seats. Um, who are who are by the way? I can attest to this. The worst at getting back to their seats. I think it's even worse that they sell alcohol there. And also, oh, I am a strong. Uh, I feel very strongly about not selling alcohol at college football games. Oh, I don't give a damn. I feel very strongly about not doing it. So the but the con to that policy is that people go and they go to the Mo Center or they go out to the the parking lot and they try and take like another five shots and all of a sudden where did the time go you know it's hard to get back to your seats and this is a thing it is it is not part of human nature to like have quick shots like especially if you've got a group of 5 to 6 people it is more frustrating than hurting cats like if you gave me an assignment of of trying to get six people to go out to the park, uh, out to the parking lot to get a, I'm using air quotes, quick drink and get them back before halftime starts, or the option of trying to chase down a chicken in an enclosed space, I would take the chicken, no questions asked. Yeah, I'm t- I'll chase down this chicken, no problem. That is a much better chance of me accomplishing that before halftime than getting people out to the out to the cars and then back we're just going to rename this podcast rusty bitches about stuff (laughs) so getting back to my earlier point there's like two issues right so on the halftime issue you basically have one of two options you can either a start saying selling beer inside Austin stadium or B, no. institute a no reentry policy, which we have at Math United Arena. Yes. Um, but then so people that, just go to the Mo, which is inside no, the grounds. Eh, yeah, technically. Um, the, the, you could figure out ways around that. Fine. So I'm, I'm a, no reentry. I'm a strong, strong no on alcohol. And that's because I go to pro stadiums. And everybody just gets wasted. Or like I went to the Rose Bowl the Ohio State year. And I was just seeing just how enslopsicated everybody got. And how not fun it became when people were just just belligerently drunk. Although statistically, people binge drink less when alcohol is available at the stadium. So, but that's just facts. That's all right. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> all right. So anyway. That's just how I feel. That's that's my emotions that's are real. Damn it! Conversation. Um, in terms of people staying late, especially on night games, I'm a little bit more conflicted. Yes, um, night games is definitely a conf- like and conflict. And I understand the season ticket holders that drive from Portland, that drive from Bend, that drive from Medford. I mean, there's a significant portion of the season ticket holder base that comes from Portland. Um, last time I heard something reliable it was about half and half uh like half come from Portland and half are from elsewhere Eugene and surrounding areas um so that's a significant portion of people that are trying to get back 
which is already, you know, on a good day, it's an hour and a half drive. With game day traffic, it's probably two, two and a half. It's two and a half for me. I I get I understand saying to yourself, it's already eleven thirty, and we're down, and I need to fall asleep. I get that. Now, with that being said, for the students, I think it's a different equation. I was one of the students that never left early with the exception of one game, and that was the Cal Monsoon game when we had it wrapped up and I left with two minutes left on the clock. Because, oh man, that was that miserable. Which year was that? It was 2013, 2012. It was when Braylon Addison returned a couple of those punts for touchdowns. That was 2013. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and that was a game where it was literally, at one point, it was almost, like, it was it was almost like you were, you were guaranteed going to be sick. I, I was in, like, some, uh, uh, man, now I'm blanking on that TV show, the, the Alaska King Crab Fisherman show. Deadliest Catch. Yeah, I was in, like, some Deadliest Catch, like, rain gear. And I still got wet, yeah. like significantly wet. Yeah. Anyway, that's not the point. But I digest. Um, for the students, you, you're supporting other students. I think that, I mean, yes, I understand that you want to go out and you want to uh, go to Taylor's and all that type of stuff. But like, it's a twenty minute if walk. You, if you want to be a part of this. You know, it requires not just investment on um, on the student athlete point, but it, it requires investment on the university as a whole, and that includes the students. If we want to have Austin be known as the place where good teams go to die, that doesn't mean the place where we might be down by fourteen and then people leave. Um, and then I. I just have one more point on this, which is both for students and season ticket holders. Leaving early, no matter what your reason for it is, if enough people do it and there are recruits at the stadium or watching on TV, that puts some doubt in that recruit's mind of, well, why would I go there, especially if it's someone from far away? who, you know, is already looking at at somewhere way far away from his home. Like Florida. Exactly. It, it puts that image in their mind of this is a place where they don't really care about football that much and they'll just quit on this team. So if, I mean, Coach Taggart and his staff have done a remarkable job at recruiting. Right now, I think we're still the number one recruiting class in 2018. Which is absurd to me. Which it's is so unreal. crazy. So if you want that to continue and you want to get talent, which will result in more wins, then there's some investment on your part that you need to follow through with. Because otherwise, if guys come out for an official visit or if they're watching on TV and they see a half-empty stadium at the end of the game, and they see current players who are not not complaining, but they're shouting out the people that do stay. 
if it becomes an issue, that's a liability for our program. That's yeah. those are my thoughts on on staying. You know, I'm pretty laissez-faire about the whole thing. If it was me, I would stay. I'm not going to be the person just like you. I'm not going to be the person that says, "Oh, you're a bad fan because you don't." Um, but with that being said, if you make that decision, you need to know that there's more that goes into it than just saying, "Like, yeah, well, it's late, and so I'm going to go home." Yeah, yeah. So on to brighter topics because I feel like this whole. This whole podcast has kind of been a downer. Which is weird because I actually felt okay about this team. After, I, I feel like it was like it was a loss, but it was like there's a lot of bright spots, and really that's what I'm looking for this year, just like bright spots in a bowl game. Exactly. We, and, I, you know, and I really think, too, that if we are 5-7, and seven, there are more bowl spots than bowl-eligible teams, and I feel like Oregon would get an invitation to one of those. Oh, we're, we're going at least 6-6. Six and six. Right now... According to S&P Plus, our probability of finishing 6-6 six and six or better is 97%. Okay. We're winning six games, damn it. <laughs> and the thing is, too, is, like, it may seem like none of this, like, we're not going to get a win on paper or anything. That's why we play the games, though. Who would have thought okay. that Arizona State would beat us? <laughs> like, nobody who, did. <laughs> who would have thought that Michigan State would beat Michigan? Yeah. I mean, Michigan State had... Their luck in terms of turnovers resulted in about 24 points worth of points, and they yeah. won by four points. Yeah. So, or, or also, Iowa State beating Oklahoma with a backup quarterback. This is why we love college football. Yeah. So, yeah, let's, let's put things in perspective. Um, just as a midseason report card, because it is now it's week seven. Yeah. Um, I have been extremely pleased with the, the coaching staff and the team thus far. Thinking back to our preseason projections, my main goals for this team were six or seven wins. Maybe I said eight because I was really drinking the Kool-Aid at that point. Six or seven wins. Everyone was drinking the Kool-Aid after well, week, so after week that, two. More so than that, I just wanted to see consistent improvement and effort every single week. And... No matter, even in the Arizona State game, which I think has been our worst performance thus far, we saw consistent effort and improvement on both sides of the ball. So thus far for me, this year has been an unqualified success. We've been bitten by injuries a bit. There's going to be some getting used to each other, growing pains with the coaching staff and the play calling and all that type of stuff. Um but overall, I'm so excited about this team yeah. and the next two or three or five years of what this holds. Yeah, and we know we're getting a guaranteed win the last game of the season. I mean, we because... could be getting and rip up a $12 million contract. Whew! Oh, my God. What, what, uh, what a day. What a day. So if you're living under a rock, Gary Anderson quit at Oregon State. And wanted to wipe his hands. Mutually agreed to part ways. So Gary Anderson quit the other day. <laughs> <laughs> and was like, he was like, you know what? And you can keep your money. Uh, the Oregon State athletic director was the athletic director at Utah State. 
that Gary Anderson was at before he went to Wisconsin. So, obviously, they get along really well, and I'm sure at some point, you've already made millions and millions of dollars from football. You don't need to be pissing off, like, your long-term, like, friend, basically, by ruining the athletic department for years. You know, I was actually kind of impressed by Gary Anderson. I think so, too. Yeah. Um, There are a lot of coaches. He had, I think, four years left on his deal and about $12 million. There are a lot of coaches that would have used that as leverage and said, what are you going to do? Fire me? It doesn't matter. I got a job. And instead, um, based on the text messages that he sent to John Canzano, who I hate to bring up, but he had a, a good string of texts between him and John Canzano. He was really frustrated with the state of the program. Um, according to the text that Gary Anderson sent, he was blaming himself for not hiring the right assistants. I mean, they are not going to be exchanging Christmas cards. <laughs> they are, uh, we really know how he feels about his assistant coaches after uh, there's a couple words that you could have used uh, which were censored just to say expletive um, but none of them are nice I mean so... said, there are a lot of coaches that would have taken that opportunity and said alright we're cleaning this staff out I didn't, I didn't hire the right guys but I got $12 million left and Oregon State's not going to fire me. So I'm going to fire all my assistant coaches. I'm going to hire some new ones and it'll be a four-year rebuilding process. Yeah. And probably also wonders too if he's just over coaching football. It could be. Um, it's such a t- it's As much as these guys get paid, it is such a tough job. It is so tough. It really is. So let's let's end on a high note. Let's look at the national schedule for football for this week and pick out a couple games that we're really excited to watch. Michigan at Indiana is one I'm excited for. That could be fun. I have some strong connections to the Hoosier State, so I always like watching Indiana and Purdue. Purdue. They are, after a few really down years, they are so much fun to watch. They are, I, I love watching them. I, um, feel like, I feel like Purdue versus Wisconsin could be a very entertaining game. Yeah. Or be every other Wisconsin game ever where they just beat you over the head with a lead pipe and eventually five minutes left in the fourth quarter, they're up by 14. I think it'll be competitive throughout. I think Wisconsin comes away with a win, but I think it'll be competitive. And I knew, I know you wanted to call it one Big 12 matchup at in the first shift. Oh, yeah. So first shift... I will 100% be tuning in to number 24, Texas Tech, at West Virginia for a couple reasons. One, there is going to be no defense played in this game. Even though Texas Tech has an improved, in in quotes, defense this year, this is just going to be a pure old-fashioned shootout, and it's going to be great. Also, West Virginia is low-key one of the greatest home field advantages in sports Morgantown is so much fun for big games, um, and I'm very excited about this matchup. One of my favorite stories about Morgantown is I forgot who they beat. I think they beat who was it? Was it USF? 
they had a huge upset over a team. And in pure Morgantown fashion, they take their couches outside and they light them on fire for whatever reason. And there's like all these fires going on and there's like all these police officers around and like fire departments. This guy runs up to one of the police officers in a full Spider-Man costume and goes, I'm here to help. And that's why we love Morgantown. Yeah. And then, um, and then and apparently people saw him at the bars later. Um, Auburn's obviously. at LSU at 12.30 in the second shift. That's going to be interesting. We lost... That's uh, what I was going to call out. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited about Auburn. Everybody kind of uh, forgot about Auburn um, after they just got taken to the woodshed against Clemson. Um, I don't think they got taken to the woodshed. I mean, their quarterback got sacked 11 times, so... Yeah. The 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 play was much worse than that score when they lost 14-6 to Clemson. Yeah. But I think everybody is kind of sleeping on Auburn. They're number 10 in the country right now, and LSU has some life. They're not completely left for dead, and it's at LSU. So I, I think that could be a really entertaining game. Yeah, and I mean, it's going to be really interesting after... LSU just did what they did to Florida, which was a week after they got beaten by Troy, and Troy was the better team that day, just playing power football. So I want Coach Ogeron to work there at LSU. I feel like if there's anybody who's meant to be the head coach at LSU, it's Coach O. It's got to be Coach O. My last one that I am very excited about uh, is in the early night shift. Um, Utah at USC. I think that'll be a fun matchup. Utah, for whatever reason, tends to always play USC pretty tough. Uh-huh. Um, they Granted, they are in a down year this year, and it's not at Rice-Eccles Stadium. Um, but I, I think that could that could have some fun moments. Yeah. Um, let me just take a quick look at these. Oklahoma plays Texas. Rivalry game. This would be the biggest win for Tom Herman. Like, if he wins this game, he's Man, set. Can you imagine Oklahoma set. going down in back-to-back weeks to Iowa State and then Texas? Yeah. No, not really, but... That would be fun. Maybe the Sooners are a little deflated after after maybe missing out on their chance for the playoff. That um, would be fun. Still, still a big maybe. Colorado at Oregon State is at one. Colorado opened as ten and a half point favorites. I will. I would be willing to bet Colorado up to twenty seven and a half right now. I have no desire to watch that game. I will watch it because I like train wrecks. As long as I'm not on it. Um. Ohio State's at Nebraska. Oof. Oof. Utah at USC. UCLA at Arizona could be interesting because Arizona has such a dominant run game. And UCLA really struggled against the run against Stanford. And that would be a good opportunity to see how UCLA defends a running attack in an offense more similar to Oregon's than Stanford's is. Arizona is just taking everyone by surprise. They are playing like how I thought Oregon State would do this year. I, I, I don't even know what to say about Arizona. So, and then 
we have the famous, famous fifth shift. It's a little Hawaii. bit of a hybrid. It's a little bit of a hybrid because Oregon Stanford is basically a fifth shift also. San Jose State at Hawaii. 8.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time at Aloha Stadium. It's on the Mountain West app. If you download the Mountain West app, you can watch the game on your device. It used to be only pay-per-view, and you couldn't even pay-per-view it on the mainland. I tried last year. I ended up watching somebody's Periscope every every game, someone who was at it. Um, and so I'm very excited to be able to watch the Hawaii game. So long story short, Rusty is a college football addict. Yes. And now, thanks to the wonders of technology, yes, you can lay in your bed with your iPad or other device and fall asleep to the soothing sounds of the waves of Mauna Loa. <laughs> I also love how the announcers just wear Hawaiian shirts. It's just... It's great. It's perfect. It's perfect. If, if you're on the coaching staff in Hawaii, you should be in shorts and sandals. And if it's a night game, maybe like a light vest. <laughs> So basically what I'm saying is Brett Bielma to Hawaii. Oh, my God. Okay, how funny would it be if Mike Riley went back to Oregon State? They would never accept him back there. That would just be that would just be one of those things where, like, we've just accepted our lot in life. It's like Arizona State with Dennis Erickson. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. What well, what a week. What a week. Despite the, the vast majority of this podcast being us uh, just full of salt, uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited about this weekend. It's, it's going to be great. Things are going to be fun. College football's here. we got to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be it's going to be a good one. It is going to be a good one. All right. All so, fun. yep. So that'll do it for us. Here at Sling and Quack. Uh, wow, we went a good 75 minutes. I'm giving you extra quack. Yeah. That's, that's The first taste is free, but then you got to come back. <laughs> well, we missed last week because my computer was broken. I come back after the uh, cow game, and I turn on my computer, and I just get a big circle with a slash through it. Which is always a good sign. <laughs> Turns out my hard drive had crashed and it, my computer was unable to reboot. So, I got it fixed now, obviously. So, things are on the up and up. So, alright. Well, hoping for a better outcome against Stanford. Hoping to see some better offense. See if the Ducks can come away with a win. Um, and, you know... If all else fails, we'll be here again next week. See you guys. And Taco Bell is always an option. Bye.